Ezekiel chapter 6, Ezekiel chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel, and prophesy against them, and say, You mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, and to the hills, and to the ravines, and the valleys, Behold, I, even I, will bring a sword upon you, and I will destroy your high places. Your altars shall become desolate, and your incense altars shall be broken. And I will cast down your slain before your idols. And I will lay the dead bodies of the people of Israel before their idols. And I will scatter your bones around your altars. Wherever you dwell, the cities shall be waste, and the high place is ruined, so that your altars will be waste and ruined, your idols broken and destroyed, your incense altars cut down, and your works wiped out. And the slain shall fall in your midst, and you shall know that I am the Lord." Yet I will leave some of you alive when you have among the nations some who escaped the sword when you were scattered through the countries. Then, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive. How I have been broken over the whoring heart that has departed from me and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. And they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils that they have committed for all their abominations. And they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. Thus says the Lord God, clap your hands and stamp your foot. Say, alas, because of all the evil abominations of the house of Israel. For they shall fall by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. He who is far off shall die of pestilence, and he who is near shall fall by the sword. And he who is left and preserved shall die of famine. Thus I will spend my fury upon them, and you shall know that I am the Lord. When their slain lie among their idols, around their altars, on every high hill, on all the mountaintops, under every green tree... And under every leafy oak, wherever they offered pleasing aroma to all their idols, and I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land desolate and waste in all their dwelling places from the wilderness to Riblah, then they will know that I am the Lord. Now here at the beginning of this passage, if you look at verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them. God has Ezekiel prophesy to the mountains, actually against the mountains. Why was God telling Ezekiel to prophesy against the mountains? Well, the short, quick answer is because of the idol worship that had been going on in, uh, there in the high, what we call the high places. So what I want to do is I want to just kind of take some time to kind of explain to you what the high places were in a real short study of that. You could spend weeks dealing with just, if you just spent your time looking up in your concordance high places and all the times it's listed in the Bible, you'll be at it for a long time. Because unfortunately, it was a major, major problem in the nation of Israel. But high places were places that uh, the foreign nations had done first, and the Jews unfortunately picked up on it, where they would raise up certain areas or go up high on a mountain and level off a spot and use that as a place to worship the sun, the moon, foreign gods that aren't gods, and all this stuff. And unfortunately, that had been going on in these other nations outside of Israel. And then, of course, Israel picked it up, and we're going to take a look at that. But God had been saying all along, don't worship on the high places. Don't go up on the mountains to worship, but worship in the one place that he had set, which was Jerusalem, where he had put his temple and his presence, and that's where they were to worship. Go back to Numbers chapter 33, and I'll show you what I mean by all this. Numbers chapter 33. In Numbers chapter 33, verses 50 through 52, look, look at what happens here. and Look at what God says. Numbers chapter 33, verse 50. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, 
When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. Again, this is something that had been going on. The foreign country, the foreign nations had all been, the pagan nations had been worshiping those false gods on these high places that they had made where they would go up to worship. Now, jump over to Isaiah 65, though. Here we saw in Numbers, God had told them to destroy all the high places when they go into the land. In, number, in Isaiah 65, and a couple other places we're going to look at in just a second, you'll see that all along God has been telling the nation of Israel to not worship at the high places. Isaiah 65, look at verses 6 and 7. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. So here we saw he told them, when you go into the land that I've given you, that the Canaanites have been in, destroy all their high places. What did they do? They didn't. They worshiped themselves, these false gods, on the high places. Go to Jeremiah chapter 3. Look at verse 6. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore. So again, went up on every high hill under a green tree. They would go up to the high places and they would worship, not the true God, but they would worship false gods. Go to Hosea. Hosea, chapter 4. If you're not sure where Hosea is, it's easy to find. Go to Daniel. Most people can find Daniel. Hosea is right after Daniel. In chapter 4, look at verses 12 and 13. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. By the way, we have a real tendency to think about how stupid that is, that they would inquire of a piece of wood, right? How many of you made decisions by flipping a coin? I'm not going to go any further. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on, tops of the mount on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills, under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. Again, God, through the prophets, kept saying to him, I told you to destroy that, not to do it. But you've been doing it all along and judgment's coming because of it. Go to Micah, Micah chapter six. Micah chapter six, verses one and two. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people. He will contend with Israel. Well, why again here is he saying that this is to be said to the mountains? Any idea? That's where the false worship and the idolatry had been going on. So I'm going to ask you a question. When Ezekiel's told to prophesy against the mountains, is God angry with the mountains? No, but it's a really good question to ask. You know why? Habakkuk asked the same question. Go with me to the book of Habakkuk and chapter 3. As you're turning there to the book of Habakkuk, I want you to kind of give you a background. Habakkuk cries out to God and says, The righteous are suffering and the wicked are prospering because of the wickedness in Israel. 
And I'm not sure you're paying attention. God and God says, I am paying attention. I'm going to do something about the wickedness in Israel. I'm going to take the Babylonians and they're going to come down and take you guys captive. Of course, Habakkuk says, that doesn't make any sense to me. I just told you the wicked are prospering and the righteous are suffering. And your judgment is going to take a more wicked nation, the Babylonians, and give, have them prosper. And the righteous in Israel are going to suffer even more when we're taken captive. Yet, God says, don't worry, Babylon's going to get theirs. And at the end of the book, Habakkuk says, I'll wait patiently for that day when judgment comes on Babylon. Now, in this chapter, chapter 3, at the end of the, his prayer, or in the middle of his prayer, you'll see that he actually prophesies on the return of Jesus Christ. And if you remember from our Revelation study, the tribulation period and what's going to be going on and the horrible things that are going to be happening and the tumult on the earth where the mountains are going to go into the sea and the islands are going to disappear and rivers are going to be destroyed and all these things are going to happen when he comes back and sets up his kingdom. Listen to Habakkuk chapter 3 verses 1 through 16 and you'll see that same question. It says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigenoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear? In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light, and rays flashed from His hand. And there He veiled His power. Before Him went pestilence, and plague followed at His heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. You know when that happens, right? At the end of the tribulation period. We read that already. All right. And by the way, when it says he's coming from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Basra, that's where, that's where Basra is in Edom. So remember, he's coming from, from, from Basra when he returns to, to, the, to the, the earth and to the kingdom of Israel. Look at verse 8. Sorry, verse 7. I saw the tents of Cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. And here's the question he asks. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. So Habakkuk, even as he's praying, and the Spirit of God prophesies through him about the return of Christ and the judgment on all the nations at the very end, he says, were you angry with the rivers? The answer is no. He's not angry with the mountains. He's not angry at the rivers then why are they suffering the consequences of man's sin? It goes back to Genesis chapter 3. Go back to Genesis chapter 3.
Look at verses 16 through 19. Genesis chapter 3, look at verses 16 through 19. To the woman he said, I'll surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. Did you see what God said? Not only did he say that there was going to be increased pain in childbirth now for the woman because of this. He then says to Adam, because of your sin, cursed is the ground because of you. The earth is going to suffer consequences for your choice. For your sin. Now, hear this. We're living in a day and age in which most people think work is a bad thing. People think work is because of the fall. That's not what the Bible teaches. If you remember, before the fall, God told Adam, placed him in the garden and told him to work the ground. Work is actually, I hate to bring this up, I think work's going to be in heaven. I think in the eternal state, we're going to create, we're going to build, we're going to plant, we're going to do all these things. Everything that God created us to be and to do, we're not going to sit around and play in harps. We live in a day and age, I heard one preacher say today on the radio, that we, let, we always hear TGIF. We know what that means, right? Thank God it's Friday. We just got through the work week and now we can do what we want to do. But there's a new attitude now. It's TGIR. Thank God I'm retired. Because they think that once we get done work, then we can do Folks, God never created us to sit around and do nothing. Nobody retired in the Bible. But that mindset, because we have this wrong concept of work, but part of it has come from the fact that work is now harder because of sin. But don't think for a second that work is bad. God created it, and it's something good. And actually, if, sin were, if, if work were sin, God sins. Because Jesus said, my father is always at his work to this very day. And I, too, am working. We've all been, it said in, Gen, in, sorry, in uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 36, when Paul's preaching, so not Paul, Peter's preaching about David. He said, when David finished God's purpose for him and his generation, he died. When did David die? When God was done with him and his generation, his purpose for him. And so, folks, I want you to see, though, here, because of Adam's sin, God cursed the earth because of it. Their bodies were cursed because of the sin, and the earth was cursed. Go to Romans chapter 8. I'm sure you've heard me teach on this before, but let me remind you. The earth is waiting for the rapture probably even more than us. Look at verse 19 of Romans chapter 8. It says, The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it. With patience. 
You see, as much as those of us who have been saved and have the first fruits of the Spirit within us, God living within us, we're homesick for heaven. We're ready to go, aren't we? And as things continue in this world to go, we even more say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. The Bible says that the earth is waiting just as much to be released from its decay. So was God angry with the mountains? No. But in prophesying to the mountains and speaking to the mountains and against the mountains, he was actually speaking to the nation of Israel because of what they did there. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 6. We're going to skip over verses 8 through 10 because I've already covered them in our previous study when we looked at that section of the hairs that he had that he put into the hem of his robe that they were going to be protected. And we already talked about the remnant that's being referred to there. But there's something here in chapter 6 that, I, like I said, my plan was to just cover chapter 6, chapter 7 and touch on, get, get in, there's a lot in chapter 8. My plan was tonight to just go fast and cover all that and get to chapter 8 because a lot, if we've been reading chapter 6 and you'll see when we get to chapter 7 next time we get together, it sounds a lot like everything we've already been reading. There's going to be judgment and pestilence and famine and all this stuff and you're going to be killed. But God showed me something here that I have to spend the rest of tonight on. There's something here I cannot wait to show you. But in order for you to grasp what's here that just jumped off the page at me, we have to do a little bit of history. We have to do a little bit of background study. You see, because God says through Ezekiel that he's going to destroy all the high places. You remember that in verses 1 through, uh, 1 through 7 we just read? He's going to destroy all the high places. Well, some of you that are Bible students, you hopefully know that this isn't the first time that the high places had been destroyed. When God said that because of the Babylonian captivity and all the stuff that was going to happen and the destruction of the people of Jerusalem and Israel... This isn't the first time that the high places would be destroyed. There was a time prior to this that all the high places were destroyed. And I've got to kind of take you back and show you what all happened there because it's going to speak to us tonight. Listen closely. It's going to speak to us tonight about what's happened in our country during this election and how we need to have a proper attitude of what is to come. So in order for us to go there, go back with me to 1 Kings chapter 12. We're going to go back and do a little bit of history, a little bit of study of the history of Israel. If you remember, David was the king in Israel after Saul. And after him, who became king? Solomon. Was he the last king in Israel? No, but he was the last king over the whole northern and southern tribes, wasn't he? Because after him, he had two sons, one named Jeroboam and one named Rehoboam. And they fought over the kingdom and Jeroboam took the twin tribes in the north. Rehoboam became king over the two tribes in the south, in Judah. And Jeroboam was a wicked king. And look at chapter 12 of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 12, starting in verse 25. It says, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim. Uh-oh, we're starting to get up in the air again. In the hill country of Ephraim, and he lived there, and he went out from there, and he built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David, if this people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, I got to stop for a second. What do we know about this golden calf situation? Is it a good thing in their history? 
I mean, good grief. God wasn't too excited about it when they said the same thing when they did it in the wilderness. And they said, here's what brought you out of Egypt. Remember when God had Moses come down from the mountain? He got so mad, he ground it up and put, made him drink it. Here now, Rehoboam makes two and says, this is the gods that brought you out of Egypt. So verse 28 again, so the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods are Israel, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. You know what God's command was that only the Levites were to be the priests. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th month, day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah. By the way, that's the Feast of Tabernacles. So he made a feast for them there so they wouldn't go to... He was afraid that if they go back to Jerusalem to worship, they'll actually go and become under the kingship of his brother. And he didn't want that, so he made sacrifices of them up there so they don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore. Like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar, so he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day of eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel, and went up to the altar to make offerings. Now, is he as king even allowed to go make offerings at an altar? Go to chapter 13, keep reading. Behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make his offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. And he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you. And human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he crowded out against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him! And his hand which he stretched out against him dried up so that he couldn't even draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn down and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. So here this prophet comes and Jeroboam's standing at this altar that he had made on a high place there. And where is it? But where is this altar though? Where, do you see what town it's in? Does anybody know what the name Bethel means? House of God. Bethlehem. Beth is house in Hebrew. Lechem is bread. Bethlehem is the house of bread. Bethel is house of God. And there in Bethel, the house of God, where Jacob met Jesus and met God face to face, he's now, Jeroboam has built this high place and he's worshiping at the altar. And he, he made all these priests. They weren't even supposed to be priests. And this prophet shows up and says, altar, one day there's going to be a king and his name's going to be Josiah. And he's going to come from the lineage of David. And he is going to burn on you, altar, all the priests that have been sacrificing at this altar. And their bones will be burnt on it. And you want proof that this is going to happen? Altar, you're going to be destroyed and all your ashes are going to fall to the ground. The king, of course, as you read, gets upset and says, grab him. 
And as he does, his hand withers and shrivels to the point he can't even bring it back. And then what happens to the altar? It just, it just falls apart right in front of him. And everything he said happens. Now, stay with me. 300 plus years later. Go to 2 Kings 22. Three, over 300 years later, that prophecy came true. And for us to go where we need to go tonight, we really need to see what happened and how it all happened. Now, at this point, 300 or so years later, the northern kingdom of Israel doesn't even exist anymore. They've been taken captive by the Assyrians. Southern kingdom of Judah is the only one left. And you see in chapter 22, you see what it says? Who's the name of this king? You remember the prophecy? There's going to be a king named Josiah. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah. Sorry, Jedida, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David, his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or the left. In the 18th year of, the, of King Josiah, the king sent Shapan. Keep that name in mind. That's a very important name for later on. The king sent Shapan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the secretary to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters and to the builders and the masons. And let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. Now what's going on at this point is the, the temple is in disrepair. Prior to Josiah becoming king, there'd been a lot of bad kings, and one of them was named Manasseh. And if you remember, we've already read in our study that one of the reasons why God was wiping out Israel was because of the wickedness of Manasseh and the things that he had done in the temple of the Lord. Remember that in our last study? I know it's been three weeks, but we looked at the fact that Manasseh had been worshiping false gods in the temple of God. And because of that, God said, I'm going to just take you guys out of the land and, and, and so on. So now at this point, they're rebuilding the temple and Hilkiah the priest is overseeing it. And Josiah says, hey, take the money collected for the rebuilding and don't even account, trust them. They'll use it wisely. Verse 8, and Hilkiah the priest said to Shapan, there's that guy again, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah the, gave the book to Shapan and he read it. By the way, does anybody know what the book of the law is? the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Remember our study in Leviticus? Remember chapter 26 and all the things God had said, if you obey me, I'll do this. If you don't, I'll do these things. Keep that in mind. And of course, numbers in Deuteronomy. And, and, he, and Shaphan read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. So what does he read before the king? The Torah. He reads the, the law of God. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. 
And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, and Akbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that's kindled against us, because of our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book, to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam, and Akbor, and Shaphan, and Isaiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva, the son of Harhaz, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter. And they talked with her. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read because they have forsaken me and made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, this is Josiah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back the word to the king. Did you hear the message from God? Everything that I said in that book that I would do if you did these things, I'm going to do them. It won't be stopped because if I say I'll do something and then don't do it, I'm not a man of my word. Now, Josiah, because you repented and you humbled yourself when you heard the word, it's not going to happen in your lifetime. But it's going to happen. Folks, don't miss that. Don't miss that. I know some of you, when the election went, like most of us didn't expect it to go, thought, we got relief, we got mercy. Listen closely. We may have received mercy. We don't know how things are going to play out. We may have received mercy, but at the same time, if God has already decreed, according to scriptures, that all nations are going to turn against him and against his people in the end, I don't care how much you think, oh, maybe it's going to be okay now. We're going to keep reading and you'll see what I mean. Go to chapter 23. Then the king sent all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that he had found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels, vessels that had been made for Baal. Isn't that interesting? They're bringing them out of the temple. For the Asherah, for all the hosts of heaven. We're going to get into that when we get into chapter 8 into great detail. He burned them outside of Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places. Sound familiar? And at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem, those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and to the moon and to the constellations and all the hosts of heavens. 
And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron. And he burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust out upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord. Isn't that sad? Where the women were wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on one's left and in the gate of the city. However, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. And he defiled Topeth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. And he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Malik of the chamberlain, which was in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire and the altars on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made and the altars that Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He pulled down and broke in pieces and cast the dust of them into the brook, Kid, brook Kidron, and the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built. Did you catch that? Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ash, the Ashtoreth for the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And he broke in plate pieces the pillars and cut down the ashram and filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover, here we see it, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah, and jo as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount. And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it, according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed, who had predicted these things. Now keep in mind, this prophet... 300 years prior says there's going to be a king coming from David's lineage and he's going to burn the priest's bones on this altar who we're worshiping here. Now, most everybody would have said, well, that ain't going to happen because, look, they all died. Didn't happen. Blah, blah, blah. But they, bur they buried all these priest's bones right around that altar there on the side of the mountain in these tombs. And when Josiah comes, he has the bones taken out and he puts them on that altar where they were sacrificing like they weren't supposed to. And he burned their bones on the altar, just like the prophecy said 300 years prior, over 300 years. Oh, but it gets better. It's not like he's saying, well, I'm supposed to do this and then I'm supposed to do this according to the prophecy. Look at what happens next. Verse 17. Then he said, what's this monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, it's the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar at Bethel. And he said, let him, let him be. Let no man move his bones. So that his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. And Josiah removed all the shrines also of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord to anger. He did to them according to all they had done at Bethel. And he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. So Josiah, when he hears the word of the Lord, he says, we got to get this stuff fixed. And he goes throughout all the land. Southern kingdom, northern kingdom, and destroys all the high places. Not only does he destroy the high places, he burns all the bones of the priests who had served at those places on the altars. He just takes out of the temple all the cult worship and the Asherah poles and the Baal altars and all the stuff to the sun, moon, uh, sun god and the moon god and pulls it out of the temple and 
Sounds like a great revival, doesn't it? Now let me just tell you, though, it's very important that you keep in mind that name Shapan. Remember the guy who was handed the book of the law by Hilkiah the priest, and he read it? Think i got to read this to the king. Go with me to chapter... Actually, before I go to chapter 8, let me just give you a little Bible history here. Josiah was the king in Israel from 640 B.C. to 609. All right? This happened in the 18th year of his reign. So subtract 18 years from 640 is roughly when Josiah does what he does. But by the end of 609, or the time during 609, he's no longer king. He dies in a battle, and he's no longer king. After him came a, guy, a king named Jehoahaz. Jehoahaz, didn't, his kingship didn't even last a year, and he actually, his kingship started in 609, and it ended in 609. Jehoiakim becomes king after him, and Jehoiakim's kingdom lasted from 609 to 597 B.C. After Jehoiakim comes Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin's kingship didn't even last, it lasted three months. And if you remember from our beginning of the study of Ezekiel, Jehoiachin was the king in Judah when the Babylonians came in their second wave and took all the captive, 10,000, remember, out of Jerusalem and took them, and how Ezekiel and his wife were a part of the 10,000 that had been taken. This happened during Jehoiachin's reign. And then Zedekiah was the last king, and he only lasted from 597 to 586 B.C. when the destruction came on Jerusalem, the final attack from the Babylonians. Now, I share that with you for a reason. If you do some math, and we just start from the beginning of Josiah's reign, 640, but we even know that when he destroyed all the altars, it was 18 years later. From 640 B.C. to 586 B.C., does anyone tell me how many years that is? It's not that hard of math, is it? It's 54 years. It's 54 years. But remember, Josiah destroying the, the altars and everything didn't happen until the 18th year of his reign. So 54 minus 18. 36. So 36 years later is when Ezekiel is in Babylon getting the prophecies from God that these things are about to happen. Are you ready? Go to chapter 8. 8 of Ezekiel, I'm sorry. Yes, thank you. You guys aren't reading my brain? You don't know where I'm going? Ezekiel chapter 8. We're going to go into great detail when we get to chapter 8 to study it. We're going to break this all down. I'm going to show you some of the amazing sick stuff that was going on. But for right now, I just want to give you a, a skim of chapter 8. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man below what appeared to be his waist was, a fire, was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand and took me by the lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy. 
And he said to me, son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary. But you will still see greater abominations. And he brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, go in and see the vile abominations that are, they are committing here. So I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall all around, by the way, this is in the temple, was every form of creeping thing and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jazaniah, the son of who? The same guy who had read the law and brought it to, Je to Josiah, his son is now leading a group of 70 elders in worship of false gods in that same temple that Josiah cleaned out. Standing among them, each had a censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. And they said, then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? Well, they say, the Lord doesn't see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And then he says, you're going to see even greater abominations. We'll get to it in chapter 8 when we get to it. But folks, is, is it sunk in yet? What happened? God, through Josiah, destroys all the high places and the false worship that was going on in the temple that Manasseh had been doing. And one generation later, the Israelites are back at it. Josiah was king from 640 to 609. Like I told you, after him came um, Jehoahaz. He didn't even last a year. Jehoiakim from 609 to 597. Jehoiachin, only three months in 597, and then Zedekiah with a puppet king of the Babylonians from 597 to 586. And from the beginning of Josiah's reign until the destruction of Jerusalem, there were 54 years. But Josiah, 18 years after the beginning, is when he began to destroy the temple. And when you do all the math and you find out, 30-something years later, they're doing it again. Things haven't changed. And the same man, Shapan, who read the book of the law and said, King's got to see this, and read it to the king. His own son was leading 70 of the elders of Jerusalem in false worship in the temple. Let me say it to you again, and I want you to hear me. I, too, thank God for his mercy on this nation. But I don't have for one second confidence in a man that's going to turn anything around. Because I know the word of God, and I know the heart of man, and I know that unless the nation turns, one man's not going to change anything. And the Bible says that judgment begins with the household of faith, people of faith. So folks, what I want to say to you is this. Thank God for His mercy. But keep praying for God to be able to be God in the lives of those in leadership in the nation. But if we're going to be faithful to this book, even if He says... Well, maybe it might not happen in these next short period. The Bible says it's going to happen. This doesn't, the election doesn't change anything that I've been saying to you all along from the scriptures. A judgment is coming on the whole world, and that includes America. And there's something here in this passage that I want to close with tonight that you might have caught as I read through the chapter Chapter 6, four times God says the same thing. 
Four times God says the same thing. You need to say, see it in verse 7? And you shall know that I am the Lord. Look at verse 10. And they shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 13. And you shall know that I am the Lord. Verse uh, 14. And then they will know that I am the Lord. Actually, 60 more times in this whole book, beyond these four right here, all throughout Ezekiel, God has said, and they'll know that I am the Lord. Go to Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 21 real quick. I want you to see something about God. He is very, very passionate about His glory. If we were to go back and relook at Leviticus chapter 18 through 26, in the book, parts of the book of the law that they read, you'll see that all throughout that whole section, when God was saying, because of this, I'm going to bring this judgment, because of this, He says over and over, because I want you to know that I'm the Lord. It's tied to their obedience. In Jeremiah chapter 16, listen to verse 21. Jeremiah 16, verse 21. Therefore, behold, I will make them know this once. I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. By the way, we love to say, I love you, Lord, and we say Lord all the time. Does anybody know what Lord means? Master? In the Greek, it's kurios. It means owner of a possession. Another one, the one who gets to call the shots. And all through the scriptures, we see it in Ezekiel 6, we see it in Jeremiah 16, we see over and over and over, God says, if you obey me, I will bless. If you disobey me, I will let you know that I am the master. We love to quote Philippians chapter 2 where it says, at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. Do you know that, right? To the glory of the Father. But by the way, I don't know how many people really understand what that passage is saying. I want you to turn there and I want you to see it for yourself because it says something in there that I want you to see and I don't want you to take my words for it. Philippians chapter 2, look at verses 9, 10, and 11. Therefore, Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him, meaning Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and where? By the way, that includes hell. The people in hell are not partying. So many people say, I can't wait to go to hell because that's where all my friends are going to be and we're going to have a party. Listen closely, folks. The Bible says that at the name of Jesus, at some point, every knee is going to bow, even those in hell. And every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Everyone, those in heaven, those on the earth, and those under the earth are all going to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Even the wicked will one day acknowledge this truth in their judgment. But guys, we have a choice. We can choose to worship Him now and acknowledge that He is Lord now, listen, through our obedience. You remember how Ezekiel had to be told to dig through the wall to be able to see what was going on in there? Well, how did God know? I think you know the answer, don't you? David said in Psalm 139, where do I go that you're not there? If I go here, you're there. If I go there, and the dark's nothing to you. Yet, folks, let me just tell you, 
as a follower of Jesus Christ. I call him Lord. But even I, I'm in that process like you shared, all of us. He begins his judgment with the household of faith. He's purifying of people right now. Oh, he's going to deal with the nations. He's going to deal with the world. And we can spend all our time as Christians talking about the wickedness of the world and the way that this nation is going to pot and all this stuff. But folks, listen to me. That same Lord is your Lord. And there are things in your life and my life that he wants to get control of. And you either choose or he's real good at getting you to know that he's the Lord. You won't win. We had kids every now and then. We had real obedient kids. But every now and then, they got a little bit of humanity in them. And when they're little, they used to always, I as a dad would say, I'm going to win. I'm going to win. And God says, you don't even have half the things at your disposal that I do. Go to Psalm 32. Go to Psalm 32. Isn't it interesting, as we've been studying all that God was doing in the nation of Israel at that time, that the wickedness of the other nations was still going on. Do you ever think about that? Were the Babylonians doing all this stuff that the Jews were doing in Israel? Of course, they were doing all that stuff. Well, why wasn't he judging them? Because he deals with his people first. We as the church spend so much time talking about the world and the nation and all this stuff. We've got to understand that God's dealing with us. In Psalm 32, David writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David said, well, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. And those of us who have walked with the Lord for any length of time know that experience of when the Spirit of God is convicting. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at the time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. God says, I'll instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Don't be like a horse. Or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay where, near you. In other words, God says, don't make me put a bit in your mouth. D does anybody know what Romans 8.29 says? I ask you Romans 8.28, you could all quote it, because that's the one everybody loves. That he causes all things to work for good, those who love him are called and called him for his purpose. Does anybody know what verse 29 says? For he's predestined to conform us into the image of his Son. He's predestined to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. In other words, he says, I'm Lord. And don't waste your time worrying about when I'm going to make the world know that I'm Lord. I'm right now wanting to make you know that I'm Lord. Oh, Lord, I've given you my life. I've trusted you as my Savior. I know you're my Lord. Okay, then why are you looking at this stuff on the computer you're not supposed to look at? Why do you have an attitude of unforgiveness when I've made so clear that those who don't forgive, I don't forgive? Why do you spend all your time doing things that I tell you not to do, but then you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? 
Folks, we all acknowledge that his return is soon, correct? That means that what he's going to do amongst his people will be turned up. It'll be turned up. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Go one last passage. Go to James chapter 4. We'll close with this tonight. Listen closely to James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. By the way, this was written to the church. This was written to the church, the Christians. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Business meetings. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. Oh, I don't murder. What did Jesus say about murder? You anger against your brother. You have ill will toward your brother. It's the same thing. You, get, you don't murder. You covet. You cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. And you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the one who makes himself an enemy of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Folks, let's take our eyes off of the United States. Let's take our eyes off the wicked all around us and put it where it belongs. On the Lord Jesus and what he's showing us about each of our lives. Oh, it's not your job to run around and tell everybody else how they ought to do it. No, the Lord takes care. Romans chapter 14, verse 4. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and the Lord is able to make him stand. Folks, I feel like God told me as I was doing this study in Ezekiel 6 that we need to take a look at the fact that when God was saying, I'm going to destroy all the high places, it had just happened 36 years earlier. And everything went right back to what it was before. And I wish, I and worse, I wish I could tell you that with this reprieve, if we will, or mercy of God, that everything's going to be fine. I don't believe it will be. But in this time that we have, He's given us individually time to acknowledge Him as Lord. One day, every knee is going to bow. One day, every tongue is going to confess. Some are going to be doing it, being forced. Don't make Him put a bit in your mouth. You know what Lordship means. Years ago, Vance Havner said he stopped giving invitations because he used to give, an, we, you know, in churches, we give an invitation if you want to be saved, if you want to come and join this church, or if you want to be baptized, and, or you want to rededicate your life. And we make so many different invitations for all these different things that pretty soon it got confusing. And so what he decided to do was he'd give just one invitation. Anybody that wants to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, come forward. You see, because if you're going to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, for those that need to be saved, 
they're going to come forward to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. For those who are being told to join with the local congregation, they're going to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and do what He says. For those who need to be baptized, they're going to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and do what He says. Whatever it is that He's selling them. And so my challenge to you tonight is, as you go from this place, will you acknowledge Jesus as Lord? Oh, He knows whether you mean it or not. And He's patient. And if you'll humble yourself, He'll give you the grace to make the change. I love you and I'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for coming.